Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Good evening to you all. Thank you for coming out so early, beating the traffic, as it were. Uh, how many of you are seeing Hensel and Gretel for the first time? Oh, that's great, a vast majority. I'm, I'm glad to, I'm always happy to see that. Uh, it is commonly reputed to be a children's opera. Um, you should bring your children, and I'm very happy to see some young people here, that makes me delighted. But it is, a, it is, a, um, it is an mm -hmm. opera for adults. Um, and very intelligent young children. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, you, usually I spend a certain amount of time telling you the story. I don't think I need to tell anybody the story about Hansel and Gretel, so I can get right on to other things. Um, unlike other times, there's no, uh, in your program you will not find an article by me because I couldn't make the deadline. But I did write it anyway, and you'll find it online. So if you go online, you'll find my article this time. Um, and it is devoted just exactly to that theme, that, to, uh, uh, that the Hansel Griddle is a very sophisticated work. It is not a children's opera. It is an adult's opera. Um, but children can fall in love with it, as I did when I was 12 years old. And that, by the way, was my last contact, really, with the opera. I sang in the children's chorus at the age of 12. And I distinguished myself by holding up the witch's house, which was falling down, until the stagehands could come, run in and save it. I was such a hero that the conductor came up and he congratulated me. And that was the first time a conductor ever spoke to me. Little did I know that someday I would be a conductor. But anyway, it remains in my mind. And I fell in love with it. And it is an opera that, that for any musician or anybody who knows it, anybody who had been exposed to it as a child, takes a, a, a very affectionate place. Um, so uh, I am thrilled because unlike, I often tell you how many times I've conducted an opera, this is the first time I'm conducting Hansel and Gretel, and I am thrilled about that. It is um, a very long time ago since I was 12 years old, but I'm delighted to, to take part in it. Uh, the, um, and for those of you that have seen it in the movies or, you know, um, you know that it has a special relationship to our Los Angeles area because the gingerbread house is in Beverly Hills. If anybody has never seen it, I suggest that you go down there because the gingerbread house uh, from the famous movie is to be still found. Uh, I don't know if it's intact, but it's certainly very beautiful and, and um, calls, it, calls attention to itself. Uh, it's the only house like it in the neighborhood. Uh, this is, uh, Hansel Gretel is a, a, a symbolic uh, story, a rite of passage of two children who lose themselves in the forest and are driven out by an angry but subsequently repentant mother and are tempted by the illusions of a gingerbread house um, and all the delicious food. And they defeat evil in the form of the witch and they bestow rebirth and a, on a group of children who have already been victimized by that witch. So it's a, it's a moral tale. Um, it, tr good triumph, evil, uh, evil is defeated. Um, and it's born of a great tradition of fairy tales. Uh, who is Engelbert Humperdinck? Uh, a German composer who was born in 1854, died in 1921. Um, this is the only work that really has ever stayed in the repertory. He wrote seven or eight operas. Uh, this was the first one. It was an, an instant and immense success. Uh, and it has remained so, remained in the, uh, in the, in the repertory. 
uh, he went to he went to Bayreuth at Wagner's invitation and spent two years at, uh, at Wagner's knee. He even had participated in the prep uh, preparation of Parsifal. He was a Wagner disciple completely, and I have to make a joke, um, you, that people say that the Requiem by Verdi is his greatest opera. I say that Hansel and Gretel is the shortest of all the Wagner operas. Uh, it, the libretto was written by his uh, sister Adelheid. He orig she originally wrote uh, uh, the text for four songs with piano, and then uh, that became uh, what's called a Zingspiel. That's an op uh, that's a, a work we've done. You know the Magic Flute. You know Fidelio. Uh, you know the Abduction from the Seraglio. You these are works where there's a certain amount of spoken dialogue and then a certain amount of music. And, but that wasn't satisfying to him, and so he kept developing it upwards until it became a full opera. He wrote it between 1891 and 1893, and on December the 23rd, 1893, uh, whence comes the tradition to do this at Christmas time. Um, it was uh, premiered in Weimar, conducted by none other than Richard Strauss himself, conducted the premiere. Uh, one year later, it was premiered in Hamburg, conducted by none less than Gustav Mahler. Um, Wagner's widow, Cosima, also the daughter of Franz Liszt, uh, staged a production in Dessau. And in the first year, it was performed in 72 different theaters. Uh, it, was the, it came to the Metropolitan Opera a decade later. Um, it was the first radio broadcast ever of any full opera by, at Covent Garden in London in 1923, and it became the first opera to be broadcast by the Metropolitan Opera in 1931. Um, Arturo Toscanini conducted it 13 times in the 1901-2 uh, season at La Scala and six sub subsequent performances in Buenos Aires and Bologna. And Herbert von Karajan uh, recorded the benchmark recording, full-length recording, um, in the 1950s. Uh, so, as mentioned, the uh, eight other operas by, by Humperdinck, but none have really stood the test of time. And I don't know why that is, and I'm ashamed to say I don't know any of them, and I, I should, and I should find out why they haven't, or maybe they should have, and they need to be revived. Uh, one of them is called Königskinder, that's the children of the king, and it was premiered in 1910 at the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, when he died in 1921, the Berlin uh, State Opera paid him homage by a performance of Hensel and Gretel, and probably the ultimate homage was paid to him by a pop singer named Arnold Dorsey, English, in 1965, decided he needed a new name to give his career a boost, and he chose Engelbert Humperdinck. Uh, so that's who he is. He's not, um, he is not a relative at all of our uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. Uh, what makes the opera so appealing and easily accessible to everybody is that the melodic writing is direct and simple, and uh, both of those and uh, those that are related to folk songs, some of, he takes some folk songs and turns them into a, puts them into a classical uh, context, and those that are original. Uh, he amply varies those, those songs so that it's not simplistic music. In fact, it's quite sophisticated. Uh, the greatest difference between Wagner and Humperdinck, I would say, I mean, aside, it's silly to compare people of genius. Wagner is a transcendent genius and will be so for 
centuries, if not forever, like him or dislike him, it is so. Humperdinck is not such an enormous character, um, but he was so schooled in the Wagnerian, uh, Wagner that he was able to really take so much from Wagner and apply it himself into, um, into, an, uh, into a new form. And what was that new form? It was called the Märchenoper, that's the fairy tale opera. And so Hansel and Gretel um, is, a, is, a, is a first of a type in a really way. Their fairy tales had appeared in operas before, but he uh, specifically employs simple, direct, melodic, and he structures his uh, scenes and his acts on melody rather than symphonic development, and that, is, uh, that distinguishes him from Wagner. Wagner also uh, was, a, was, uh, was obsessed... With, trans, uh, with transcendent themes, with redemption through love, with the great passions, Tristan and Isolde. Um, he attacked and wrestled with great philosophic questions uh, in his operas. Hansel and Gretel, Humperdinck, don't do any of that. It's a very, it's a very direct uh, comparison. Um, and for those of you who know Parsifal a little bit, um, and if you don't, you will someday, I hope soon, uh, the parallels are very interesting. Both are tales that take place in a forest. They are both stories of good and evil. Um, there are, there are a, there, the protagonists are innocents, people who are not um, normally designed to become great heroes. Parsifal is a simple fool. He is called. He is called, but he he redeems. Um, he 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 becomes an uh, actor of redemption. Hansel and Gretel do the same. They are children. They are innocent, but they uh, perform an act, a heroic act, and they redeem others. Um, the, there are those in captivity who are suppressed by evil magic, and they are the Knights of the Grail in Parsifal, and they are the gingerbread children who um, are part of the house of the, of, of the witch. And of course, they have been, uh, uh, I should say, baked, not frozen, into that condition by the witch's oven before the opera began. Um, both, in both operas, there's going to be a struggle with, uh, and, uh, with temptation, and temptation also um, with evil magic. There's a wicked man in Parsifal, his name is Klingzor, and he, uh, he uh, has his magic castle and his garden. And there's a wicked person in uh, Hazel Gretel, and that's the witch, and she has her gingerbread house. And in those places, they, they work their magic, they do their evil. But both are destroyed as well as their environment, and rebirth is given to the Knights of the Grail in Parsifal, and to the children the, who are gingerbread children who have to be revived. Now, enter here the Grimm brothers, the brothers Grimm. That's spelled with two M's, even though they, a good description sometimes would be with just one M. They collected fairy tales. Um, they were probably the greatest, uh, uh, greatest researchers and students of fairy tales in German literature. Uh, they, uh, Jacob, the older one, was born in 1785, and his brother Wilhelm a year later. Um, they were the second and third children of nine, uh, nine children. Three of those brothers and sisters died in infancy, 
Uh, they were tutored at home with a very strict Lutheran upbringing, instilling a lifelong religious faith and belief in discipline. Uh, their father died when they were when the, the, in, when they were nine and ten, respectively, and um, so they knew impoverishment. They were impoverished, and they were they knew hunger, they knew death, and so the many the story, the background for Hansel and Gretel, which is informed by hunger, and that's a very important element, um, is coming out of their personal experience uh, as well. And they, they were primarily researchers and they printed in 1812 and 1815, which means that Humperdinck, who's born um, 30, 40 years later, 30 years later, uh, this is pretty contemporary literature. They're, I mean, they are reading literature. These stories are very old. They go back for centuries and were deep into the Middle Ages, but the, the translation and the popularization has been, is new. Uh, they've been, of course, translated throughout the entire world. They've been set to music by, for instance, Tchaikovsky. Um, they've been made into films, Walt Disney in particular. Um, they were used as propaganda value by the Nazis, which led to questioning and reassessment of the grim fairy tales after the uh, Second World War. Uh, interestingly enough, and this supports my thesis that this is an opera for adults, um, the vast majority of these stories were not intended for children and parental discretion was urged in reading them to children. In fact, at a certain point, uh, they were some of the, uh, the, the, um, the, the crueler aspects of many of these stories was modified. Uh, they were meant to be didactic um, and they were, uh, they were admonitions to be good children, otherwise something will happen. In other words, fear was used as a, um, as a, as a form of education. So, um, abandoned children. Abandoned children are in a common element in many fairy tales and folk narratives, and also the abandonment impulse of parents uh, was, is, um, is, uh, uh, was more common than one would, would, would think. And of course, um, it was a common practice when there was not enough to eat that parents would give away their children or simply abandon them because they could not feed them and they were uh, concerned themselves. So another feature of many folk tales are stepmothers, wicked usually, and you read about the wicked stepmother. And well, where does that come from? Well, due to the shorter life expectancy, uh, many women died young and many women died in childbirth. And so, consequently, the men were remarrying, and so a lot of children had stepmothers. Well, some of these stepmothers took in the new children and loved them dearly, but some of them didn't, and some of them resented the children that were not their children and the fact that they had to take care of them. So the, gradually, over the course of centuries, the wicked stepmother or some kind of wicked, uh, evil, or frightening maternal image takes a big place in fairy tale, and it's going to take a big place in today's story. Uh, not just uh, the witch, who is a surrogate mother, but actually the mother mother, and we'll get back to that um, in, a, in a second. So, um, so the stepmothers and stepchildren were, bo or stepchildren were both uh, candidates for hostility and for resentment. Um, our children are heroines. Gretel becomes a heroine. Uh, first, uh, she is frightened and there's fear and tears, and then she discovers her personal strength and resources, and uh, she, ha she feels she's been abandoned by both God and Hensel. Uh, have they failed her? 
and should we include Hansel as, an, as a, a hero? I say yes. But there's a, strong, uh, there's a strong feeling amongst many interpreters that Gretel is the real heroine of this story because she, she in fact, is the one who uh, outwit, uh, outwits the witch and uh, through, her, um, uh, through her agency, the story comes to full fruition. Also, in the original Grimm story, she plays a more dominant and leading role than does Hensel. Now, in the original story, the, the mother is really, really wicked and mean. And she convinces the father that we're going to take these children out to the woods and we're going to abandon them there. The children overhear this, and so they are taken to the woods, but Hensel cleverly um, collects uh, pebbles which shine in the moonlight, and so they are able to return to their home during the night, and they are found there by the parents in the morning to the relief of the father and to the great fury of the mother. So the mother does it again. Out they go, and he puts down the famous breadcrumbs. You all know about that, the, the stream of breadcrumbs in order to find, um, find their way back. But he makes a he makes, a, as many things do, he makes a fatal error. He does not realize that the birds are going to eat up all of those breadcrumbs, and so they do. So they cannot find their way back, and for some, uh, a month or so, they wander until finally they find this beautiful house, uh, full of, which, is, uh, which is a house to eat. And all of a sudden, those hunger pains and those hunger fantasies are uh, satisfied by this... Um, by, uh, uh, the, by, the, by what they think they're going to do is eat. Well, eat they do, Hensel in particular, but what they do not realize that this is a house of a witch whose, pur whose purpose is to feed them up, fatten them up, and then eat them. Now, in the original Grimm, eventually they outwit the, uh, they outwit the witch. The witch is killed. They push her into the oven. She's punished justly, and the children go home. And when they go home, guess what? Their mother has died. Very interesting, very Freudian. In other words, the witch is a substitute for the mother, and in so killing the witch, they have, symbolically at least, destroyed the wicked mother as well. And so it's, they're happily ever after. Why? Because the good father is with them, and they are with, and they are with him. Uh, now, in the opera, they're not... The, there are not many characters, and you know them all. You know Hansel and Gretel. You know their parents. There's two pair. They're a pair of children, a pair of parents. Um, there is the witch. And then there are two um, uh, make-believe or imagined characters who come out in the night to uh, serve a function. One is the Sandman, who comes to put the children to sleep in the second act. And the other one is the Dew Fairy, who comes to wake them up uh, in the morning. So... These, everything's in pairs in this opera. Now, actually, the mother, uh, who, by the way, has a name, Gertrude, is written in the score, but is never mentioned in the opera, and he has a name, Peter, is never mentioned, he's never mentioned. They, so they're just mother and father. The, the witch and the mother are sort of uh, symbolically linked. In fact, my dream would be someday to have the same person, I'm sure it's been done, the same person sing both roles, because they never appear on stage together. Uh, so they are linked by that. The two characters, the Sandman and the, and the Dew Fairy, the Sandman puts to sleep, the Dew Fairy wakes up the children. Um, they, they actually sing the same musical motive when they come in, which means they are two uh, sides of a coin. They are uh, gifts from heaven. They are brought down from heaven uh, uh, as a benediction on the children, first of all, giving them sleep, 
and then waking them up. In other words, heaven is looking over and, and taking care of them. And why is heaven doing that? Well, heaven does it anyway, but these are good children, and they say their night prayers before they go to sleep. And the famous prayer from Hansel and Gretel, yeah, known as the Abendsegen or the Abendsgebet in German, is, became so popular that it bordered on a popular melody at the time. I'm curious how many of you will know it. It's the first thing you're going to hear in the prelude. Now, the prelude is going to tell the story and is going to set out the motives. Now, you know Wagner was all about light motifs, leading motives, musical motives that described a person, a place, an emotion, or an object. And, of course, Humperdinck has adopted this. And so we're going to meet many of the important motives right in the prelude, and I'm going to walk you through a few of them shortly. This is how it begins. This is the prayer. Writing this kind of choral music, which is, of course, uh, coming out of the Lutheran hymns, is not new. Here's the Meistersinger by Wagner. Meistersinger, Wagner. Opens the first act at a church. In a church. And that's taken from Bach. This is the St. Matthew Passion, which of course is full of chorales. The chorale was the basic cultural identifying uh, type of music for Northern, Northern Europe and German and, and German, it, 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 whereas in Italy, we were just doing Don Carlo, of course, uh, we got a very big religious work from Roman Catholic Southern uh, Mediterranean, in other words, an Italian opera about a Spanish court. Now we're going to get a Rhineland, that's in the northwest of Germany, we're going to get a northern uh, take on religion with its uh, chorale-like um, uh, sympathy. Now, the, the pr here, here we go. Uh, I'm going to go to show you. The chorale finishes this way. Listen to this. There can be no doubt that that's somehow about religion. It's somehow about God. Um, look at the gesture of playing, woodwinds playing very high as if one was looking up to heaven. And I'll, I'll play that for you again. Listen to this. Here's a model, and it comes from Wagner, and it's Lohengrin. So you see, Humperdinck took this type of very solemn, majestic music written for woodwinds as a religious theme. He also took this from Lohengrin. Here it's mainly strings, and you see this is this bright shining light which is meant to represent the grail. But this is the deep spirituality of Wagner 
which Humperdinck has taken and placed in the center of this opera. Now he's going to play that against something else. What is that? Oh, that's the witch. Okay, hocus pocus. That's what she's gonna when she does her um, when she does her magic in the third act. It, that's it, hocus pocus, like that. And that, uh, by the way, that's a musical in interval. For those of you that studied music, that's the fourth. Uh, that means there are four notes in between that and the and the, the beginning of a scale. Bump, bump, beep, bop, bop, beep, bop, 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 bop. Sometimes it's gonna go up. Bump, 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 bump. That is an identifying character, uh, 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 it's a trademark, a, a, a way of identifying the witch. So we, we get, we're going to get all these elements now. We've gotten the religious element, now we, 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 here's our witch. And this very short motive, now two notes, is the wind. The wind, the wind, it's only the wind. That's what the children are going to say later in the opera. Hocus pocus, and you can hear the wind. Now here's another. This is gratitude. That's not a cafe on Larchmont Avenue. This is the real thing. This theme will come back in several times. Gratitude to God, God gratitude to heaven for their protection. And to some degree, thanksgiving. is another theme. This is the celebration of the children. They will celebrate to this music in the at the end of the opera. Now you hear the two things are put together. You hear the chorale in the brass and the celebration in the woodwind instruments. Chorale. Children celebrating. Now here you hear it put all together with the great celebration of the children. So you're getting all the important musical themes, but also the psychological themes. Gratitude. Thanksgiving. Well placed for this week. And so it goes on like a symphony. And here they are. 
And now the music becomes like folk music. like to dance. Here's a dance. They do what all kids do. They tease each other, they play games, and they're not doing their work. Here's another dance. And when they do that, they quote Wagner again, Das Rheingold. Another dance. Now, mother is going to come in and she's going to be angry because they haven't been doing their work. Here she comes. They're dancing around, and here's mother. It's like Scarpia coming into the first act of Tosca. So she's angry. You didn't do your work. And then, of all things, what happens? The milk spills and it's all gone. We know we're not supposed to cry over spilt milk, but the mother's angry and she sends the children out as a punishment. And, and so it is. And then she laments uh, to music that sounds like Parsifal. And then, there it is. The milk just got spilled. That's the end of the world. Sounds like Wagner's Die Götterdämmerung. You can hear those strings coming. End of the world for the gods, end of the world in their little house because the milk spilled. Here comes the father. This is his little song. So he's a pretty benign guy. He drinks a little bit too much, but he's nice and he's kind, and he's brought a lot of food home, so the mother is momentarily uh, satisfied. However, when he finds out the children have gone to the woods, he tells the mother about the witch. Listen to this theme in the timpani. Now that again is the, it's not it's not very audible here, but you'll hear it when you go when you when we're in the hall. Bum 
bum, bum, bim, bum. That's the fourth, the interval of a fourth again, and that's the witch. And you may recognize it, you fans of the Flying Dutchman. Is. Now he sings, and you hear this mysterious music. It reflects some kind of mysterious supernatural force. Here's Wotan in Siegfried. Listen to that same kind of chorale-like music. And here is the sleeping motive. Brunhilde will fall asleep for 20 years to this. This is the vocabulary that uh, Humperdinck is using. So here she is on a broom now. He tells, he tells us all about the witch. Listen to those bassoons. It's very hard to hear this, but you'll identify it later. Listen to the beginning again. Folk-like. Now, it's very similar to this, which is by Gustav Mahler. Those are his Knaben Wunderhorn songs. Those are songs he was writing at the time when he conducted Hensel and Gretel. Are we allowed to say that Humperdinck has an influence on Mahler? I don't know. It's never been studied. I've never read about it. But, you know, he was a man who picked up everything and, and used it. And so maybe there is. So. It's going to be a great climax at the end of Act One, just as, it is, as Wagner does in Acts One of Valkyrie and Siegfried. He knows how to create a very dramatic uh, end of the act. And here it is. The mother uh, is now f sufficiently frightened by the father's description of the witch, and they decide to go out into the woods and find the children. get a big climax, and that is the end of Act 1. But in this, he, we go directly into Act 2 without a pause. There's the interval of a fourth. Bum, 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 bum. That's the witch. We are now in the woods. Witch music. This is her dance. Now we don't see the witch, but Hooperdink tells us in advance something's in that woods. And eventually it calms down. And we have this beautiful sense of tranquility in the forest.
The forest has always had great symbology in all of in, in folks, fairy tales, uh, and in culture in general. It's the it's uh, at the same time it's magic, it's supernatural, it's fascinating, it's dangerous. Creatures live in the forest. When you leave and go into the forest, anything can happen. And so that's the power, uh, the poetic power of the forest. Now, we we meet. All sorts of nice things too. A cuckoo, and the children, uh, the children imitate the cuckoo. So now, basically, the opera has a first act which is exp expository. It shows the situation. The two kids, they are their hunger. The the uh, mother given to anger. Uh, the good father. The second act is pure poetry from the beginning, and it's poetry about the forest. And so we have these poetic moments, as we have right here, where the cuckoo is heard, and the children imitate the cuckoo and have a conversation with the cuckoo. But... Eventually, they realize they're lost. Now, this is very quiet, but listen to the horns. Bom, bom, bom. Wagnerian technique. First act of Die Walküre. barely audible. You'll hear it later. But this is a technique of Wagner to paralyze us with expectation and usually some form of fear. Then there's the echo. The children cry, who's there? And the echo comes back. They know they're isolated. Now, who loved to work used the echo was Wagner. Here's the Flying Dutchman. Verda, who's there? Echo, but no answer. Or in the last act, where they call to the shipmen of the, of the Flying Dutchman. No answer. So these frightening moments are well explained. Now, this is where we learn that the emotions of children of fright are deep emotions. They're no less deep for children than they are for us. And so those who criticize Humperdinck and said, you know, it's a big deal about nothing. These are children. That's wrong. He has shown us that they are worthy of the type of profound music um, that we usually associate with adults in operas. In this case, we understand that all these emotions are as real to the child as they are to the adult. So they are afraid, but eventually, the Sandman appears. 
and suddenly we're up in heaven again. We feel that celestial music, that shining, pristine color. And she has her second theme. She, it's really a man, it's a sand man, but it's sung by a woman. So the, it descends, the music comes down as if it's coming down from heaven. The sand, the sleep is a gift from heaven. And so they pray. This prayer is one of the most sublime moments in the entire opera. And it will be followed with the theme of the Sandman coming down from heaven. Angels descend from heaven. And we can feel that in this music. Now it's a little different in our production. You're not going to see any angels, but you'll see something very nice. a real apotheosis and eventually it, the chorale of the prayer Now, I've gotten you to the end of Act 2. And that's where intermission is tonight between Acts 2 and 3. One and two go together, and then three, and you've been in the forest. In the third act, of course, that's where the real story is. That's where everything happens. The children find the house. They uh, eat. The witch comes out. The witch challenges her. She is a witch who is, to our eyes, humorous and funny as well, but the, of course, the re reality is she is a dangerous and wicked individual. Uh, I'm going to leave all of that for you until after intermission. I don't have time to go through the whole opera with you, but you, uh, I am sure, will enjoy all of that. I'm very uh, grateful to you for coming out tonight, and I hope that you enjoy yourself. Thank you so much. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.